Volume 1, Chapter 9 of Diana Temple by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 9 Is it well with the child? Second Book of Kings, Chapter 4, Verse 26. A happy childhood is one of the best gifts that parents have it in their power to bestow, second only to implanting the habit of obedience, which puts the child in training for the habit of obeying himself later on. A happy childhood is like a welcome into the world. This welcome John never had. No one had been glad to see him when he arrived. No little ring of downy hair had been cut off and treasured. No one came to look at him when he was asleep. No wedded hands were clasped the closer for his coming. The love and awe and pride which sometimes meet over the cradle of a first child were absent from his nursery. The old nurse, who had been his mother's nurse, took him and loved him, and gave herself for him, as is the marvellous way of some women with other people's children. I believe the under-housemaid occasionally came to see him in his bath, and I think the butler, who was a family man himself, gave him a woolly lamb on his first birthday. But excepting the servants and the village people, no one took much notice of John. It is not even on record whether he even crept, or what the first word he could say was. It was all chronicled on Mitty's faithful heart, but nowhere else. Mitty was proud when he began to sway and reel on unsteady legs. Mitty walked up and down with him in her arms, night after night, when teeth were coming, crooning little sympathetic songs. Mitty dressed him every afternoon in his best frock, with pruse sash and ribbon socks, just like the other children who go downstairs. But John never went downstairs at tea-time, never gnawed a lump of sugar with solemn glutinous joy under a parent's eye, or sucked the stiffness out of a rusk before admiring friends. No one sent for John. He was never wanted. Mitty had had troubles. She had buried Mr. Mitty many years ago, and, after keeping a car of her own, had returned to the service of the Fanes, with whom she had lived before her marriage but I do not think she ever felt anything so acutely as the neglect of her lamb. When Mr. Tempest was expected home, John was put through tearful and elaborate toilets. His hair, dark and straight, the despair of Mitty's heart, was worked up till it rose like a crest on the top of his head. His bronze shoes, which succeeded the knitted socks, were put on. But after these great efforts Mitty always cried bitterly, and kissed John, till he cried, too, for company, and then his smart things would be torn off, and they would go down to tea together in the housekeeper's room. That was a treat. There was society in the housekeeper's room. Mrs. Alcock was very large, spread over with black silk which had a rich aroma of desserts and sweet biscuits. There were in her keeping certain macaroons John knew of, for she was a person of vast responsibilities. He sat on her knees sometimes, but not often, for she breathed and rose and fell all over and creaked underneath her buttons. She was kind, but she was billowy, and the geography of her figure was uncertain, and she could never think of anything to interest him but macaroons, and she was enigmatical as to how the armament was fastened into the top. The butler, Mr. Parker, was estimable, but Mr. Parker, like Mrs. Alcock, was averse to answering questions, even when John inquired, why his head was coming through his hair. 
Charles, the footman, was more amusing, but he never came into the housekeeper's room. It was difficult to see as much of Charles as could be wished. He was really funny when Mitty was not there. He could dance a hornpipe in the pantry. John had seen him do it, and Charles was always ready to pull off his coat and give John a ride. What kickings and neighings and prancings there were going upstairs on these occasions! How John clutched round his horse's neck, urging him not to spare himself, till he pressed his charger's shirt-stud into his throat. Once, on a wet day, they went out hunting in the garret gallery, but only once when Mitty was out. And the housemaid with the red cheeks was the fox. Ah, what an afternoon that was! But it came to an end all too soon. Charles wiped his forehead at last, and said the fox was gone to ground, though John knew she was only in the housemaid's closet, giggling among the brooms. That was an afternoon not to be forgotten, not even to be spoilt by the fact that when Mitty and a bag of bull's-eyes came home, she was very angry, and called the fox an impudent hussy. Perhaps that event was the first that remained distinctly in his memory. Certainly afterwards people and incidents detached themselves more clearly from the haze of confused memories that preceded it. The following day, as it seemed to John, perhaps in reality many weeks later, he had a vague recollection of a stir in the house, and of seeing various kinds of candles laid out on a table near the storeroom. And then he was in a new black velvet suit with a collar that tickled, and they were in the picture-gallery, he and Mitty, and there were lamps, and all the white sheets were gone from the furniture, and it was all very solemn. And Mitty held his hand tight and told him to be a good boy, and blew his nose for him with a handkerchief of her own that had crumbs in it, and then wiped her eyes and gave him a flower to hold, telling him to be very careful of it. And John was very careful. Years later he could see that flower still. It was a white orchis with maidenhair, and then suddenly a door at the further end of the gallery opened, and a tall man, whom John had seen before, came out. Mitty loosed John's hand and gave him a little push, whispering, "'Go and speak to your papa, and give him the pretty flower.' But John stood stock-still and looked at the advancing figure. And the tall gentleman came down the gallery and stopped short rather suddenly when he saw them, and said, "'Well, now it's all flourishing, I hope. Well, John,' and passed on and Mitty and John were much depressed, and went upstairs again the back way, and Mrs. Alcock met them at the swing-door and said she never did, and Mitty cried all the time she undressed him, and he pulled the orchis to pieces, and found on investigation that it had wire inside, and experienced the same difficulty in putting it together again next morning that he had previously found in readjusting the toilet of a dead robin after he had carefully undressed it the night before. After that, Papa became not a familiar but a distinct figure in John's recollection. Papa was seen from the nursery windows to walk up and down the bowling-green on the wide plateau in front of the castle where the fountain was, with Neptune reigning in his dolphins in the middle. John was taught by Mitty to kiss his hand to Papa, but Papa, who seldom looked up, was apparently unconscious of these blandishments. He was seen to arrive and to depart. Sometimes other men came back with him, who met John in the gardens, and made delightful jokes, and were almost equal to Charles, only they did not wear livery. One event followed close upon another. A lady came to Overley. 
but here Mrs. Alcock agreed that no lady had ever stayed at Overly since, and then they stopped, and that very evening John was actually sent for to come down to dessert. Charles, who had run up to the nursery during dinner to say so, remarked with a prefatory, Dorks, that wonders would never cease. John was quite ready at the time the message came, sitting in his black velvet suit and his silk stockings and his buckled shoes in his own chair by the fire. He had grown out of several suits while he waited. It was one of the many inexplicable things that he took in wondering silence at the time, that when he wore those particular garments a certain red cushion was always put on the seat of his little cane-bottomed chair. Mitty told him when he inquired into it that that was because of the pattern coming off on his velvets, bless him, and John did not understand, but turned it over in his mind, together with everything he heard, and pondered long beside the nursery fire over many things, and was a very solemn, richly dressed, lonely little boy. He had always been ready, always waiting, when Mr. Tempest was at home. Now, at last, he was sent for. He took it with a stoic calm. Mitty and Charles were much more excited than he was. Even Mrs. Alcock, who had seen too much of the ways of scullery and dairymaids to be capable of being surprised at anything in this world, even she was taken aback. Mitty and he went together down the grand staircase, and the carved figures on the banisters had lamps in their hands, so many lamps that they made him wink, and in the great stone hall there was a blazing log fire, and among the statues there were tall palms and growing things. John was still looking at the white fur rugs upon the stone floor, and counting the claws of the outstretched bear's paws, when Charles came to tell him that dinner was over. The moment had come. Mitty took him to the door, opened it, and pushed him gently in. The dining-hall looked very large and very empty. John had never been in it at night before. A long way off at a little table in the bay-window, two people were sitting. A glow of shaded light fell on the table. Mr. Parker was not there. Even Charles, whom John had always considered indispensable in the highest circles, was absent. John walked very slowly across the room, and stopped short in the middle, his strong little hands tightly clasped behind his back on the clean folded pocket-handkerchief that Mitty had thrust into them at the last minute. He was not afraid, but he did not know what was going to happen next. The lady turned and looked towards him. She was pale, with white hair, and a sad, beautiful face, as if she had often been very, very sorry. She was older than Mitty and Mrs. Alcock, and Mrs. Evans of the shop, and quite different, very awful to look upon. John was wondering whether she was Queen Victoria, and whether he ought to kneel down. "'Come here, John,' said Mr. Tempest, but John did not stir. "'So this is John,' said the lady, and she put out her wonderful jewelled hand with a very gentle smile, and John went straight up to her at once and stood close beside her, on her gown, in fact. It was not Queen Victoria, it was Mrs. Courtney. After that night a change came over John's life. He was not forgotten any more. Mrs. Courtney, during the few days that she remained at Averley, came up several times to the nursery, and had long conversations with Mitty. John, arrayed in the stiffest of white sailor-suits with anchors at the corners, came down to see her in the sunny morning-room where his mother's picture hung, 
and showed her, at her request, his Noah's Ark, which Mitty had given him, and afterwards conversed with her on many topics. He repeated to her the hymn Mitty had taught him. When little Samuel awoke, and mentioned Charles to her with high esteem. She was very gentle with him, very courteous. She gave him her whole attention, looking at him with a certain pained compassion. Gradually John unfolded his mind to her. He confided to her his intention of marrying Mitty at a future date, and of presenting Charles at the same time with a set of studs like Mr. Parker's. He was very grave and sedate, and every morning shrank back afresh from going to see her, and then forgot his fears in the kind feminine presence and the welcome that was so new and strange and sweet. Once she took him in her arms and held him closely to her. Her eyes were stern through her tears. "'Poor little fatherless, motherless child,' she said, half to herself, and she put him down and went to the window and looked out looked out across the forest to the valley, and over the stretching woods to the long lines of the moors against the sky. Perhaps she was thinking that it would all belong to that little child some day, the home where she had once hoped to see her own daughter live happily, with children growing up about her. Mr. Tempest came into the room at that moment. "'What, John here?' he said. "'Yes,' she replied, and was silent. There was a great indignation in her face. "'Mr. Tempest,' she said at last, "'evil has been done to you not once, but twice. "'You have suffered heavily at the hands of others. "'Be careful that someone does not suffer at your hand.' "'Who?' "'Your—' Mrs. Courtney hesitated. "'Your heir.' "'He is my heir,' said Mr. Tempest sternly. "'That is enough.' "'Then do your duty by him,' said Mrs. Courtney. You do it to others, do it also to him. And thenceforward, and until the day of his death, Mr. Tempest did his duty as he conceived it, never a fraction more, but never a fraction less. John was put early to school. No one went down to see the place before he came to it. No one wrote anxiously about him beforehand, describing his health and his attainments in the Latin grammar. Mr. Goodwin, who was afterwards his tutor, long remembered the arrival of the little, square, bullet-headed boy with a servant, with whom he gravely shook hands on the platform. Mr. Goodwin had come to meet him, and Charles, the last link to home, was parted from in silence. The small luggage was handed over. Once, as they left the station, John looked back. Mr. Goodwin saw the little brown hands clench tightly. John had a trick of clenching his hands as a child, which clung to him throughout life. But he walked on in silence. He was seven years old, and in trousers. Pantalon oblige. Mr. Goodwin, a, a good-natured undermaster, fresh from college, with small brothers at home, respected his silence. Perhaps he divined something of the struggle that was going on under that brand-new little greatcoat of many pockets. Presently, John swallowed ominously several times. Mr. Goodwin supposed the usual tears were coming. "'These are very large puddles,' said John suddenly, with a quaver in his voice. "'Large than—' The voice, though not the courage, failed. "'They are tempests,' said Mr. Goodwin. "'Uncommonly large.' 
and that was the beginning of a lasting friendship between the two. That friendship took a long time to grow. John was reserved with the reticence that in a child speaks volumes of what the home life has been. He had not the habit of talking to anyone. He listened and obeyed. At first he held aloof from the other boys. Mr. Goodwin advised him to make friends, and John listened in silence. He had never been with boys before. He did not know how. first half he was very lonely. He would have been bullied more than he actually was, had he not been so strong and so impossible to convince of defeat. As it was, he took his share with a sort of doggedness, and would have started on the high road to unpopularity in his new little world if he had not turned out good at games. That saved him. And before many weeks were over, long, blotted accounts of football and cricket and rackets were written to Mitty and Charles. Mr. Goodwin noticed that the weekly letter to his father never contained any particulars of this kind. There had been a difficulty at first about his correspondence, which, after long pondering upon the same, John had brought to Mr. Goodwin for advice. "'I want to send a letter to someone,' he said one day, when Mr. Goodwin had asked him into his study. "'Not father.' "'To whom, then?' "'To Mitty. I said I would write. I promised.' And he produced a very much blotted paper and spread it before Mr. Goodwin. "'It's a long letter.' It was indeed. The writing had been so severe and the paper so thin that it had worked through to the other side. "'For Mitty,' said John. "'That is the person it's for, and another for Charles, with a picture in it.' And a second sheet, suggestive of severe manual labour was produced. "'I see,' said Mr. Goodwin, his hand laid carelessly over his mouth. "'But, uh, yes, I see, this is for Charles, and this for <coughs> Mitty. And you want them to go to-day?' "'Yes.' John was evidently relieved. He extracted from his trousers' pocket two envelopes, not much the worse for seclusion, and laid one by each letter. One envelope was stamped. "'I had Two stamps,' he exclaimed. "'One I put on, and the other I ate in a mistake. I licked it, and then I couldn't find it.' "'Well, we'll put on another,' said Mr. Goodwin, who was a person of resources. "'Now, what next? Shall we put them into the air envelopes?' John cautiously assented. "'And perhaps you would like me to direct them for you?' "'Yes.' John certainly had a nice smile. "'Well, here goes. We'll do Charles first. Who is Charles?' "'He lives with us. He brought me on the train.' "'Really? Well, what is his name? Charles what?' "'He's not Charles anything,' said John anxiously. "'That's just it. He's only Charles.' Mr. Goodwin laid down his pen. He saw the difficulty. "'He must have another name, Tempest,' he said. "'Try and think.' "'I have thought,' said John. "'Before I came to you, I thought.' I thought in bed last night. And don't you know Mitty's name, either? No. John's voice was almost inaudible. Dear me, said Mr. Goodwin, smiling, and not realising the gravity of the situation. We can't put Mitty on one letter and Charles on the other. That would never do, would it? There was a moment's silence in which hope went straight out of John's heart. If Mr. Goodwin could not see his way out of the difficulty, who could? He turned red, and then white. 
His harsh-featured little face took an ugly look of acute distress. "'I said I would write,' he said in a strangled voice. "'I promised Charles in the pantry. It was a faithful promise.' Mr. Goodwin looked up in surprise, and his manner changed. "'Wait a minute,' he said, eagerly. "'The letters shall go. We will manage it somehow. "'Is Charles the butler at home?' "'No, that is Mr. Parker.' "'What is he, then?' "'He does things for Mr. Parker. Mr. Parker points, and Charles hands the plates.' "'Footman, perhaps?' "'Yes,' said John, with relief. "'That's Charles.' "'Now,' said Mr. Goodwin, with interest, "'shall we put the footman, Overly Castle, on the envelope? "'Then it will be sure to reach him.' "'There's Francis. He's a footman, too,' suggested John, but with dawning hope. "'Francis might get it, then. He took a kidney once.' "'We will put Charles, the footman, then,' said Mr. Goodwin, writing it. "'Overly Castle, Yorkshire.' "'Now, then, for the other.' "'When I write to father, what do I put at the end?' said John, his eyes still riveted on the envelope. "J. Tempest, and then something else?' "'Esquire,' suggested Mr. Goodwin. "'Yes,' said John. "'I think I should like Charles to be the same as father, please.' Mr. Goodwin added a large esquire after the word footman. "'Now for Mitty,' he said. "'I suppose Mitty is the housekeeper.' "'Why, the housekeeper is Mrs. Alcock,' said John, with a smile at Mr. Goodwin's ignorance. "'There seem to be a good many servants at Overley.' "'Yes,' replied John. "'It is a nice party. We are company to each other. You see, father is always away, almost, and he does not play anything when he is at home. Now Charles always does his concertina in the evenings, and Francis is learning the flute.' After the direction of the second letter had been finally settled, John licked them carefully up and looked at them with triumph. "'You must go now,' said Mr. Goodwin. "'I'm busy.' John retreated to the door, and then paused. "'Me and Mitty and Charles are much obliged,' he said with dignity. "'Don't mention it,' said Mr. Goodwin. But the incident remained in his mind. End of Volume 1, Chapter 9